Brethren, it's good to be with you once again, and I thank you for the privilege of coming and opening God's Word with you this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter and chapter 3, our portion will be from this chapter this morning. First Peter chapter 3, and we'll begin our reading in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And our verse for today. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And with that, would you pray with me? Our God, we come before you in prayer, and we would seek your face. We would seek blessing from you during this time, that you would come upon preacher and hearer alike, and that you would show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come among us and do a work in our midst. We call upon you with faith that you might act, that you might bind up the brokenhearted, that you might convict the sinner, and that you might draw us near to yourself. We pray and we plead that your spirit would come, that you would teach us and enlighten us, and that you would prepare us for eternity to come. And it's in Jesus' most precious name that we pray. Amen. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Brethren, here we have Jesus Christ, the founder, the head of the Christian church. Over two billion people worldwide identify with this man. They worship him. They build their life around him. But his fame and his influence are not based on some technological innovation, some campaign of war, or any other means of fame. The billions that follow him today follow him for the reason that we find here. The untold numbers that have followed him for the last 2,000 years and all who looked to him before then It all comes down to what we find here in verse 18, that Christ suffered. 
And I would put before you today the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider that it was foretold that he would suffer. And from cradle to grave, he did suffer. And to this day, the issue at the heart of Christian religion is that Jesus Christ suffered indeed. Yes, even at the core of the gospel, the core component of this good news message that Jesus Christ brought, it is that Jesus suffered. And it's the nature of his afflictions that makes them so profound. And if we are to apprehend something of what is described in this passage for us, we need to have a view of Christ in his true nature to see that for all eternity, Jesus Christ enjoyed only uninterrupted delight and approval from God, his Father. He knew as the eternal Son of God, perfect love and acceptance within the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit. He received unceasing praise and adoration from the whole host of heaven. He experienced in heaven pure bliss, greater than any happiness among men, and yet in his time on earth he would suffer and experience greater agonies than the deepest man ever has or ever will. And you can be sure that no one deserved it less. Jesus Christ is infinite in his perfections. He's perfectly holy, harmless, and undefiled. He's free from any original corruption that came through Adam. He's free from even the littlest act of sin and instead is full of grace and truth. He had in himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was in his eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory. He made the world and all that it contains And he upheld and governed all things that he made with all power and wisdom. And then 2,000 years ago, he entered into his creation and he walked among us. He took to himself the nature of a man. He really was man just as much as you and I are human with all the essential aspects that come with that. He needed sleep. He needed to eat. He started as a mere infant and needed to grow He experienced weakness. He even paid taxes. All of the essential parts, if you will, of what it means to be human, he had. He was fully God. He was fully man and without sin. And all of this was necessary because God had called him and appointed him from eternity past to take up an office, to be a mediator between God and man, a savior for his people. And Jesus wholeheartedly agrees to execute this office as mediator. He comes to the earth in the form of a man, and yet very God. And it's scandalous to think that not only did Almighty God come to the earth in the the form of a man, but that that God-man suffered. The scandal of the incarnation is that although Jesus lived a perfect life. He didn't have a perfect life, if you will. He had a lifetime of suffering. Think from the moment of of, uh, his birth, the moment he breathed his first breath, he was hunted. A bloodthirsty king chases his family away into a strange land. He's a stranger from his earliest moments. He's born in an inn which has no room for him. 
Instead of a throne, he gets a feeding trough. And then before he can begin his earthly ministry, he's hurried into the wilderness for 40 days of prolonged and terrible conflict with none other than his greatest enemy. And such that even when the devil left him, he was found in such a state of weakness that angels ministered to his needs. The very angels of his own creation ministered to his weakness. He spent his time not in palaces of opulence, not feasting at fine dinner parties, not visiting with other kings and emperors and seeing to the work of the world, but he walked among the poorest and the lowliest of the world. He lived in poverty. Throughout his life, foxes and birds were better off than he. They had holes. They had nests. But he had nowhere to rest his head. And he was surrounded day by day by desperate human conditions of suffering and need most severe as the, the most severely affected flocked to him for healing and relief. He felt their tears. He heard their cries. And the prophet Isaiah said long ago that he was to be acquainted with grief, that grief would be a lifelong acquaintance. And by the end of his life, he had been betrayed by his closest friends. He had been rejected by his own people, falsely accused by the religious elite, and condemned by the powers that be. The men of his own creation oppressed him. The ones that he sustained and gave life-giving breath to, they used their breath to curse him. They breathed out lies and insults and murder. He truly was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But of course, all this is Nothing compared to what he experienced at death. Who could forget the agonies of, of the garden as he prayed, the bloody sweat and his groanings as he poured out his heart before God, seeing what was to bear down upon him in the horrors and the agonies of the cross with all God's wrath poured out upon him, having been torn, beaten, punched, scourged, pushed, spit upon, mocked, stripped. Then he was pierced, and he was crushed. He was chastised, and he was wounded, not only of men, but by God. And in Exodus chapter 12, Moses gives instruction for the preparing of the Passover as the people would go out of Egypt. And he, he said that they must take a lamb that is without blemish, and they must take its blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel, and that they must, must eat it in their home. And he said it is to be eaten at night. It is to be roasted with fire and eaten with bitter herbs. And Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb that was, if you will, roasted by the fire of God's wrath, that he ate and and felt the bitter treatment from God. He was consumed entirely by his suffering. And the scriptures say in Hebrews 5 that all this worked together to teach him obedience. 
that though he was God in the flesh, though he was without sin, suffering prepared him. The Hebrew writer says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. An ounce of the suffering that he, that he bore would have utterly flattened the strongest mere man. Just the dread, just the misery of being rejected by men. Think of how being rejected by peers in school, being an outcast by coworkers, can, can be a life-defining experience that some never recover from. And think how many take their own life or driven to end their life because of mockery, because of rejection, because of they are made an outcast. And this was just one drop, just one aspect of the cup that Jesus drinks. And all of this, I admit, is it's difficult to fathom. It seems impossible uh, to even go into all the details of this lifetime of suffering. But su- suffice it to say, as Peter sums it, Christ suffered. It all seems too much to accept. It's hard even to conceive of that one man should be afflicted with such pain and that he should be oppressed to such a degree. It seems altogether unrealistic, unfathomable, unjust. And yet it's true. Christ suffered. Certainly even for his disciples, this was something that was unacceptable. It was inconceivable disagreeable, even offensive. You remember Peter's reaction in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then, Peter's reaction to this as he sits and listens to Jesus revealing the glories of redemption and what God has planned that they might obtain salvation. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke his Savior saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Not in a million years, he says, will I allow the Messiah to suffer such shame to suffer this fate. And truly, if Messiah's aim was luxury and power, if he was after influence and riches, then certainly suffering would have been an absurd choice. But in choosing suffering, he was taking up a great cause. Because this kind of life that was strained and pressured, it was chosen and it was embraced because of his dedication to deal with the one central issue that threatened the very lives and eternal destiny of his people, sin. It was for sin that he suffered. It was a grueling expiatory work. Grueling in that it stretched every fiber and nerve of Jesus' earthly life. An expiatory, it was an expiation in that it resulted in the taking away of sins. What drove the nails through his hands? What marred his face beyond recognition? What distressed 
him so, one so meek and mild? What caused him such anguish and made him suffer as no man suffered before? Sin. Sin. Not his own, for he had none. But the sins of his people. You see, there was a great exchange that had taken place. We can see Christ's substitution in what Peter describes. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And this right here, Christ's substitution, is a central feature of true and vital religion. Because we could say that the mere fact of Jesus suffering on the cross was the most awesome event to ever take place in the history of the world. And yet, we would be no better off if it had not been a substitutionary suffering. If Jesus merely set an example for us of how to suffer, then we are yet without hope. But Jesus suffered in the place of his people. He paid their ransom. So you cannot die for yourself. I cannot die for you. We cannot make a sacrifice of giving our lives for each other because of our own sin. But Jesus Christ was uniquely qualified as mediator. And he was fully furnished to deal with sin, absolving it in his people and satisfying God's demands. There was expiation and propitiation. And it was all accomplished through this life of suffering. He suffered once for sin. In contrast to all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which must be repeated year by year, this suffering was never to be repeated in the history of mankind. It was full. It was sufficient. It was effectual to ransom the unjust. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And God made him to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there's a divine verdict involved in this. And that's what Peter calls our attention to. Because we have the just and the unjust. We have the righteous and the unrighteous. On the one side, you have the only one who is worthy of the title. Uh, Peter attested to this in Acts chapter 13, saying, God glorified his servant Jesus, and Pilate had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, he says, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Stephen also, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And Ananias, again, when he speaks at the conversion of, of Saul, he says in Acts chapter 22, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear from his mouth. And John, the apostle, writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous. God himself speaks, affirming this fact at the Lord's baptism when he declares 
In Matthew chapter 3, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When God looks at the totality of Jesus' life in thought, word, and deed, he is able to say, I am well pleased with him. There is nothing in him that dishonors me. He has looked to me in every respect. This is the righteous one. And so this title has to do with that divine verdict, the very judgment of God. At the end of our lives, we will be judged. Every life will end in judgment. And at the end of a life and every stage in between, we can look and say, has that individual fulfilled all of their duties toward God, all of his commandments? And for Jesus, the verdict is yes, he's blameless. He left nothing undone that must be done. He did nothing that must be avoided. And toward the law, Jesus was guiltless down to the very smallest detail. You think Peter could have easily said here that Christ suffered once for sins, the sinless for, the sin, for sinners. And that would have been true and accurate. He could have said it was the perfect for the imperfect. But to have God's ruling pronouncing one righteous and the other's unrighteous is far more weighty and to his point because in our text there is an exchange of the righteous one for the unrighteous many it doesn't come through necessarily in in our translation the just for the unjust but it is the one just for the unrighteous many and this was a ransom that was paid by one that was approved by God for the others that would otherwise be condemned by God. It was a ransom that was paid. We have Jesus' own righteous life that was given in the place of many unrighteous. And his life was not just one of selfless service, of time and energy and influence, as one preacher says, but he gave his very blood. He gave his soul. He gave his very death in the place of and on behalf of unrighteous men. Brethren, think of what is in the nature of man that makes this payment necessary. What is it about sinners that makes, them, that makes this payment necessary? They are so thoroughly unrighteous that the prophet can say even our best deeds are like filthy rags, only fit to be discarded by God our body, our mind, our will, our spirit, indeed our whole person has been infected by the power of sin. And however much we might complain about fairness and, uh, and how we are treated, the fact is that in the courtroom of God, there is nothing good that is owed to us. In God's judgment, our very best is an offense to his holiness. And our history is a spectrum of sin from one degree to another. We're not inclined to good by nature. We're not inclined to love God. This one who sustains us and gives us everything we have. We're not even able to love him wholly with our heart, mind, and strength. But rather we're inclined to reject him and to serve ourselves instead. Think what is in the nature of God that makes such a payment necessary. God is too holy to forgive sinners Without this payment being made, he's too just then to release uh, men from the curse without payment. Blood must be shed. 
For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So atonement must be made. And so with the just for the unjust, Peter reminds us of the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's the beating heart of Christian religion. Christ crucified in the place of sinners. Is this the Christ that you know and love? Is this the Christ that you serve? Do you merely revere him for his teaching and his morals? Or is Christ precious to you because he died in your place? This is an offense to modern man. That Christ died in the place of sinners. Many recoil from the gospel over this central point. Many turn away because the idea that someone else would pay for your sins is repulsive. They might say, I have, to, I have to right my wrongs. Nobody can do this for me. I'm going to take responsibility. It's something that I have to do. And some are so concerned that no one be inconvenienced on their account, that they show themselves virtuous by doing hard things and taking responsibility for the actions, maintaining their pride, that they reject any help and any substitute. And our ignorance of hell and our ignorance of eternal judgment blind us to our very desperate state. Our ignorance of God and His holiness dull us to the fact that when it comes down to it, we're utterly helpless to keep ourselves afloat in the churning, foaming ocean of God's wrath. I've had someone refuse to listen any further to the gospel because they insisted, well, it's my sin. And so I have to pay for it. As if sins could be made up for by reforming behavior. As if he could stand before God at the judgment, confident that he has correctly estimated the violations of the law that he's committed, and he's ready dutifully to receive his lashes for falling short of what he knew he should have done. And it's utter foolishness. It's the height of arrogance and ignorance. And it will land you straight in hell. And in light of sins of pride like this that would reject help from God, that would reject a Savior, and everything about the unjust that offends God and that stokes up his wrath, might we rightly think about the alternative? Why has God done any of this at all? Why didn't God do away with us instead? Why the suffering? Why the substitution? At so great a cost, with such agonies, with such bitterness, why not exchange us for a a nobler, purer race of creatures? Why did he not exchange this world with all of its corruption and evil rather than exchange his son for corrupt men? Or at least redeem us at a cheaper price. But brethren, herein is his love commended to us. And here is the scandal of God's love we see the purpose of Christ's sufferings in reconciliation that he might bring us to God in our age we think of being brought together and in some ways we're closer than ever we have more means to communicate than ever and yet isn't it true that despite that some of us feel more disconnected than ever And our relationships are are thin, 
They're broken, they're scarce. People long for friendship. We long for closeness. But it's closeness with God that is most precious and needful of all. You need peaceful, you need peace with God. Peaceful communion like Adam had when he walked with God in the cool of the, of the day. Peace that sees the smile of God shining down upon us. But that peace has become war since Adam. And sin divides us from God. It turns us away from our Creator. We're at enmity with God in our mind through wicked works. And this is the very problem that Christ has solved. Jesus is the answer. And sin is the question. How is sin to be dealt with? How can this major obstacle be moved? This is the bondage that Christ has redeemed us from. This is the purpose of his suffering and death. It's the great end of Christianity to be brought near to God. In Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Drawing near to God is the very starting place of salvation. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Hebrews 7 says that Jesus Christ, as this fitting mediator and high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So by absolving our sins and satisfying God's justice, Christ accomplished this principal mediatorial work, reconciling a holy God and sinful men. Even as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He says, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that while we were enemies, Romans 5 says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. They who were enemies through sin are now reconciled through righteousness. Those who were far and cut off by their defilement are brought near and given free access by Christ's blood. Once they were not a people, but now they are God's people brought to him through Christ. They were exiles and sojourners, Peter writes. They didn't belong in this world. And by the blood of Christ, they were brought home to the very presence of God, a home that God has built and prepared for them that we might be with him. Peter says that these believers are living stones. They're chosen and precious, being built together as a spiritual house. But one day they will be in God's house. They will receive a heavenly welcome. They'll receive celebration and rejoicing and the open waiting arms of a loving heavenly father. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And one day Christ shall bring them into the splendor of God's presence. Not ruled from afar as a captive nation would be, but transported to settle in their new home with God. Christ will bring us to God on the basis 
of nothing else but this atoning work. His suffering and death being fully approved by God, declared righteous, fully completing that the work, the work that God had given him to do. He's revived us by his spirit. He's cleansed us by his blood. He's clothed us with righteous robes, crowned us with the crown of life, called us to his own, and he presents us to God as a trophy of his grace. And how glorious is this one who brings us. We cannot enter God's presence with filthy clothes, but we're given Christ's white robes of righteousness. And in those, we cannot fail to have an audience with him. He is the sure way to God. No one comes to the Father except through him, but no one will be turned away if they come through him. And we see a picture of being brought uh, to God at the cross. We see it symbolized in the tearing of the veil of the temple. The veil hung. It heard the cries of the Savior upon the cross and it tore from top to bottom, giving access to where no man was allowed, opening a new and living way so that now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Hebrew says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And now no barrier is between us and the Almighty. There's no guilty conscience. There's no filthy heart. There's no defilement. There's no wrath. There's no danger of God's judgment. Christ has reconciled us to God by his sufferings. And so, my friends, this is our Christian hope. This is our assurance of that blessing that Peter described, that it is better to suffer that we are blessed in the midst of suffering. Because why? Christ also suffered that he might bring us to God. And his suffering guarantees the blessing of our salvation. And in this portion of 1 Peter, he presents him not so much as an example for us to follow, but as the basis for our confidence in the midst of affliction. His sufferings were triumphant. They produced peace Yes, we must not revile when we are reviled and we must follow the example of Christ. But in his sufferings, he was triumphant. And so shall our sufferings end in peace. We might be oppressed for the time being, but we shall know lasting peace when we are, we are with him. And God has highly exalted Christ because of this. Because Philippians says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient through suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, Paul writes, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We have seen the suffering servant, but we have yet to see the glorious Christ exalted by God himself above every name in heaven. And this exaltation of Christ, his glory, his glory secures our glory. It ensures the betterness of suffering for doing good. It is, if you will, the wealth that Moses preferred. You remember the example of Moses, that he considered it better to be mistreated. He chose mistreatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He said it was better wealth to have the reproach of Christ and to bear that with him and God's people than to have all the treasures of Egypt because salvation was his reward, because salvation is our reward. And so can you see Christ? He's invisible now, but can you see him? If you see him, you can endure. If you look at your persecutors and the oppression that you suffer, in other words, Peter says, you will not last. If you look down at your suffering, you will not last. But if you look at the Savior who suffered for your sake and is alive today in glory, you will make it. If you see by faith that it's better to be near to God than to be rich and powerful and wicked, if you see that it's better to know the Lord's salvation than avoid a thousand toils and pains, then Christian, you will make it safely to the end. You will see God. There's nothing to fear. Will your persecutors separate you from God? Will you be cut off in the judgment? Will your enemies ultimately triumph? There's no way. Christ has secured our salvation. In eternity, we will feast in the presence of the King. We will conquer though we die because of Him who suffered. And so... We need to see that nearness to God, being brought near, is our great reward. Is that what you want? Is that what you long for? Ever since the garden, sin has separated us from God, and our greatest need today is to be near to him. In Psalm 73, we have the example of Asaph, who looks out on the prosperity of the wicked He lives in the midst of evil men triumphing over the righteous. And wicked wicked men are going unpunished. There's injustice being committed of every sort. And yet Asaph's heart is drawn to God with all desire and expectation when he confesses, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Then I might tell of all your works. Being with God was his chief consolation in in the injustice that he witnessed. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He, He felt the Lord with him in the midst of suffering. He knew his guidance, teaching him the way that he should go. And he had confidence that at the end, God would be there. That he would not leave him nor forsake him. Nearness to God was his great reward. Is it yours? Is nearness to God your great reward? What do you want more than anything? Because the Christian wants to be with God. And the Christian's great consolation is that when he gets to heaven, God will be there. Yes, there will be Greatness in the freedom from sin. There will be relief from all suffering and struggle, but better than those things. A more wonderful reward is that God will be there and he will rejoice over us. Brethren, we must look to that reward if we are to endure. Whatever may come, whatever suffering we might encounter, might press upon us because we associate with Christ, we need to look to that reward all the blessings that Christ has purchased for us. Look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. 
that you may endure. Peter instructs his people how they might suffer well. And, you know, of course, no one likes suffering. Our bodies naturally recoil from physical pain. And you know how mental agonies and spiritual struggles can be even more acutely unpleasant. And there's some suffering that makes sense. For some people, it's not hard to understand why they are suffering. Because they're evil. They're doing evil. And we think, well, they're getting what's coming to them. And we feel that because God has has linked suffering and evildoing. It's an inescapable reality that evildoing brings suffering, either in this life or the one to come. It must and it will. But when the righteous are afflicted, it is by God's merciful and selective appointment. And Peter wrote to a righteous group. They were sincere believers. They were seeking to do good. They were zealous for what's good. They had good behavior in Christ. They were doing good, and yet they suffered. And this is perhaps the worst kind of suffering. It's hard to see why innocent people have to endure suffering because of their innocence. The suffering that every child knows when they've been punished for something their brother did. Being punished for sincerely taking up the cause of God and his truth. That's difficult suffering. And yet this is the reality that the apostle was burdened to help these believers see clearly and to deal with biblically. Peter's basic purpose, we could say, is to instruct about suffering, to encourage them, to stabilize them, to enable them to face it in a way that glorifies God and advances the gospel. So how can we suffer well in light of all of this, in light of Christ's suffering and all that he has done? Well, I'd offer a few things as time will allow. First, remember that your suffering is rooted in salvation, that Christ really did this, that the gospel is true, and that however much you might be bewildered by what you are feeling and encountering, there is a firm and stable foundation. There is a worthy cause. The living connection that you have with the living God has brought about your suffering. These things are true. They're weighty. They're vital. Either Christ died or we are without hope. Christ died. So your suffering is meaningful and worthwhile. And secondly, remember that Christ is the only answer for injustices and the only true remedy for your suffering. No Supreme Court decision, no training course, no handbook is going to make this right. None of that's going to resolve the problem. Only the gospel is going to solve the core problem of sin. And that's why Peter offers this as the assurance. They were in great need, and he puts before them a suffering Savior. The gospel, which is central to solving suffering. And then remember that God's not going to let this persecution, this suffering end in misery or in defeat or in shame. There is a glorious end to these sufferings. And when you are brought before God in glory, 
He's going to make all, all wrongs right. He's going to wipe, wipe away every tear because the Lord Jesus is our consolation. Remember that God is not blind to your suffering. His own son suffered and he suffered on your behalf. He did it to secure justice. And so Strawn writes, the cross signals to us and to all humanity that justice has happened and that justice is coming. And so in all that you might take from ungodly people and all that the wicked might say or do about you, God's not going to let anyone get away with anything. The justice of God is real. It has come upon Christ and it is coming for you, for your sake. It's coming upon the world. Remember that Christ is your hope in the midst of suffering. At prayer meetings, you know, we often pray uh, that, that afflicted saints, that their trial would bring them closer to God. Lord, may this trial bring so-and-so closer to you. And how can that be? We can be brought near to God through suffering. It's because of the cross that that is possible, that we can pray that blessing. Because Christ suffered, there's a blessed reality for the believer. It brings us Suffering brings us more of what we want. Rightly applied, it doesn't drive a wedge between us and God's goodness. Suffering is God's goodness to us. It's not as if God is good in spite of suffering. Our suffering is Him being good. Remember that Christ is your hope. And then remember that our suffering is put in perspective when we see Christ. We think of all that the God-man endured. You suffer. You do. But it is little compared with him. And are we to adopt a victim mentality or boast about all that we've been through? Or shall I make you feel bad for me because of what I suffer? It's me that made Christ the victim. And so if you're going to boast about what you've been through or what you're suffering, do it like Paul did. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When we suffer, we deserve it. He didn't. He was innocent, spotless, blameless and we stumble in many ways and our offenses are great before God and the perspective that Christ's suffering gives us is that we are spared much even in the midst of our worst suffering anything short of hell is a mercy for us and so brethren through this suffering savior we are brought many precious blessings and assurances what a savior we have what a redeemer what love of God in Christ. And then, finally, a couple other points. And I want to I zero in on one of those remembrances uh, as something to keep in mind, that all of the Christians' suffering, especially the ones that experience suffering because of their association with Christ, all of that will end in glory, not in defeat or humiliation. 
Peter's theme for uh, this book in 1 Peter is glory after suffering. He writes with the end in mind. And this glory colors his theology of Christ and his teaching on suffering. And you can follow me with me if you want to just look briefly, starting in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again in verse 11, the prophets inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Chapter 2, verses tw- verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. First uh, Peter 4 Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Do you see the prevalence of this theme? Do you see how this is vital for suffering saints to comprehend and to grasp that God will bring glory out of suffering. Because the Christian has a unique and foundational and intimate relationship with suffering because of the gospel. He understands it differently from the world. It defines his life for good, gloriously so, and not for bad, not as one who's the victim of trauma, It's a cause for joy and not complaint. It's an opportunity. When he sees glory, it's an opportunity for, uh, excuse me, when he sees suffering and when it pains him in his flesh and oppresses his mind and strains his spirit, he says this is an opportunity for the glory of God. It's not an oppression to fight off. There's an intimacy with God that is known only through this experience. It's known by the cross of Christ And it's known by our everyday suffering for Christ if we endure it with godliness. An intimacy, a nearness to God. Jesus suffered and has gone into heaven with God. And so shall we suffer and one day be in heaven with God. We shall follow the same steps of emptying and exaltation as our Savior. And so finally, it's painful to suffer when you do what you're supposed to, when you live according to God's word, when you suffer injustice. But even injustice must be filtered through this lens of suffering before glory. Because like Asaph, 
when he entered into the sanctuary of God and there gained a right perspective on injustice. So we must gaze at the cross and gain a right perspective on injustice. We'll find that the greatest good that was ever done was done at the cross. And humanly speaking, the cross was the greatest act of injustice there ever was. There was no one who deserved it less There was no one who was so mistreated as the Lord Jesus. And so we realize that injustice plays a key role in our salvation. That doesn't mean that we love it or we approve of it. We must hate it because God hates it. But we respect that God in his providence uses even the greatest evil to accomplish his good and wise purposes. And so when injustice strikes at us, we do not strive Shout, kick, argue, complain. But by the Spirit of Christ, we're enabled to suffer quietly with a good conscience, with self-control, with integrity, maintaining inward peace, every courtesy, and joyful submission. When we think of how he suffered for us, the blessings he brings us, the relief that will come, we can press on and suffer well. Someone asked me recently if I had any doubts about whether Christianity was true. I don't. And I can stand before you today having had doubts about a lot of things, having doubted even ever whether I was a Christian. But I have no doubts about the Christian faith. God has confirmed it to me over and over. And one day I can stand, one way that I can stand before you today with such confidence is found in these very words. For Christ also suffered. Because the glories of the gospel begin with suffering. It's essential to the Christian message. And the ultimate questions about suffering all find their answer in this. For Christ also suffered. When it comes to human suffering, no religion in the world is more qualified to understand it or cure it. Not Buddhism with all its ascetic monks. Not Hinduism with all its Doctrine of karma, only Christ as the suffering servant can bring healing to our deepest need and redeem us from our greatest problem. Only he can take away my sin, and he has. Only he can redeem a people for himself, and he has. When it comes to your personal suffering, there's no better friend than Christ who suffered. In the 22nd Psalm, we read, That messianic psalm, it ends saying, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. The the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amen. Our God, please so come and please so give us a view of the Lord Jesus Christ that we grow in our love and devotion to him day by day. We thank you for the confidence in him that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our God, bring us into this love.
Teach us obedience, even through the things that we suffer. May we be presented before you as perfect and blameless, standing in the spotless robes of Christ, having his righteousness at that final day. Lord, you are our hope. And so we pray to you now in confident expectation of what you have done in Christ and what you will do in our lives. We ask this for your sake, for your glory alone. Amen.